Welcome everyone to the edition of the Government by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupo. Thank you for joining me today. So today we are continuing our series on idolatry and civil disobedience. This is, I believe, part four of that series. So we're getting close to the end, probably uh, this one and perhaps one more. We'll see how far we get. But before we go into the main topic, I do want to do a law of the day, but this time I want to make it a little different. Uh, last episode, I mentioned a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 regarding the matter of conscience on eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And I I think I made uh, one mistake in that, and I wanted to uh, talk about that, clarify, and correct my statement. So basically, uh, in that passage... Um, the passage talks about uh, you going over to a person's house who's an unbeliever. The unbeliever sets before you some food, and you are informed that the food has been sacrificed to idols. And it was my understanding at the time that it was the host, the unbeliever um, himself, who was telling you that the food had been sacrificed to idols in an attempt to try to trap you or trick you or... Uh, just get you to violate your conscience and that you were not supposed to, therefore, eat that kind of food uh, because of that. Um, and even though that might be a possible option, I do think there's a better and more accurate um, understanding of this law, this uh, passage from First Corinthians. So I'm going to read the passage again, and we'll go through it uh, and spend a few minutes on it and then continue with our main topic. So the law of the day or passage of the day, if you will, is first Corinthians chapter 10 verses 23 through 33. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So a brief explanation here. Paul had just warned the Corinthian Christians earlier about idolatry, earlier in the chapter. Uh, the pagans were making sacrifices to demons. He, he mentions that, that their idolatrous sacrifices are not to they're not to real gods, but ultimately they're to demons. The food and the idols are nothing. The idols are blind and deaf and mute. And Paul would be familiar with that because that, that phraseology is found all throughout the Old Testament, how idols, uh, they cannot see, hear, or speak. Um, the food, of course, is part of God's creation. That's why Paul could quote the Old Testament saying, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But he says that people, God's people, should not be associated with demons. There's, just, there's no reason for that. We should be associated with Christ. And he spends a few minutes uh, earlier talking about the Lord's Supper as an example of that. So whereas the pagans would, would have an a idolatrous meal uh, associated with demons, Christians have a God-honoring, faithful meal associated with Jesus Christ. So now in this passage, Paul is discussing what is 
typically called Christian liberty or Christian freedom. And basically, he is trying to say, you know, do, don't go out of your way to question the meat. I mean, yes, obviously, uh, you need to stay away from idolatry and from those, those pagan worship practices, but um, don't make it a point that you need to go and at every you know, market, every place you go, you're, you're worried about the meat. You're making a big deal of what, what this meat came from or what happened to this meat. Um, so, you know, so if it's available, you can partake of it. And, but you can also choose to abstain. There's no requirement that you have to eat it. And then he says, it goes on the example of, the, of being invited to an unbeliever's house. Okay, look, you're free to attend. If you're disposed to go, you don't have to go to the unbeliever's house. If you want to go, go. Now, it is possible that the food was sacrificed to idols. Okay, don't worry about it. Um, if you go, just eat whatever is set before you. Don't bring up a ruckus. Don't, don't make a big deal out of it, uh, what, what happened and where this meat came from. Now, if someone tells you it's offered to idols, then do not partake. Now, my error last episode on this passage was I was thinking that it was primarily the, the pagan host who was pointing out that, you know, oh, this is sacrificed to idols. You sure you want to eat it? But while that is a possibility, um, it is more likely that it's a fellow Christian that is doing this, that, 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 you're, that you're going to a party or to a dinner party or whatever, and you're with, there with a couple other Christians, um, and the meat's, the meat's out on the table, and one of your fellow Christians is not eating the meat. He is just eating the vegetables and the bread and whatever the case may be. And then you reach your hand for the meat, and your friend, your, your, your fellow Christian, whispers to you saying that it's been offered to idols. Now, in that moment, uh, Paul would point out, uh, the, the idols are nothing, and the meat is the Lord's. Um, but he does say um, the goal is to is to preserve the conscience of your fellow believers. And, and for the sake of conscience, his conscience, not yours, his conscience, you should abstain. Okay, not to cause offense to, uh, or, or stumbling to your fellow Christian. So ultimately, the goal is to exercise freedom wisely, to preserve conscience, and to win both Jews and Greeks to Christ. And this is where Paul says he tries to please everyone. Of course, this is always in the context of what God allows. He's not going to engage in sinful behavior. He's not going to purposely associate with idols just to join uh, the idols there. Now, in application of this, of this passage, in matters that God neither commands nor prohibits, we do have freedom as Christians. We can purchase and consume items that might come from pagans and that might have come from idolatry. Okay, The items are not unclean because... The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's, it's, all, it's all part of God's creation. And we are to give thanks in all things that we partake. Now, we should abstain from things when it comes to saving the conscience of a fellow believer. So that's the, that's the priority here. Why do you restrain yourself from your freedom? Why do you limit yourself and limit your freedom? Because of a fellow Christian. It's a fellow Christian that we know and who knows us. And this Christian is possibly tempted by observing our behavior and he comes to us with real concerns not not hypothetical you know there might be a person out there somewhere who doesn't like what i'm doing no 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 no. we're we're with the person we know his struggles um and and he's really bothered by what we're doing he's tempted into into sin by what we're doing and we should be we should abstain 
Now, there's a second reason why we might want to abstain from exercising our freedom, and it's to be a witness to others. So, if we are evangelizing the Jews, you know, going to someone's house, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to eat bacon. We're not going to bring the bacon. You know, we're not going to do things that we know are just offensive to them. And there's no real need for us to have to do that, right? We we have freedom to eat bacon, but we should. Um, put others first in that regard when it comes to trying to share the gospel. If we're visiting a pagan people, and this has happened quite often, you know, throughout history where missionaries go to various tribes all throughout the world, South America, Africa, India, other parts of the world. Um, if you're visiting a, a tribe and they whatever they put before you to eat, you, you should eat it as a, you know, they're being hospitable and it would be insulting to not eat their food, right? So you should try to accommodate yourself um, to avoid offending them and to demonstrate that you have freedom, okay? And our accommodation, though, is not a license for us to engage in sin. Um, and there are modern examples of this. Probably the most commonly used one is alcohol or tobacco. Um, you know, if we're, we're not going to go to the home of an alcoholic and bring alcohol with us, um, which would only be tempting and would not be helpful in any way. Um, and we might, if we're at a restaurant having dinner with a person who struggles with alcoholism, we might not order um, an alcoholic beverage, right? Again, the, the goal is to preserve conscience here. So I just wanted to bring some clarity on what I had mentioned and um, the mistake I had made in the last episode. Um, so anyways, that is our law of the day, and I think a, a relevant one and useful and applicable for Christians today, no doubt. So with that, let's move on to the main topic today, that of civil disobedience and idolatry. So over the past several episodes, we've looked at what idolatry is. We've looked at um, what it looks like, some of the signs of it, um, some examples in scripture of idolatry taking place, how, how the Christians responded, how the pagan world responded. And then we got into the Roman Empire and early Christians, how um, the Romans tried to engage in idolatry or try to get everyone to join together in this unifying act of idolatry to save the empire and to bring unity uh, to the entire region so that they could survive and thrive, right? And the Christians um, weren't going to be part of it. They didn't want to be part of it. And the issue, of course, is the public displays of obedience, which were beyond the bounds of scripture. So the, the, the Roman pagans, they their primary focus was outward obedience to whatever the behavior was, the offering of incense, the pouring out of a libation, um, declaring one's allegiance to the gods of the empire. So the issue was public displays of obedience rather than so much what you actually believe in your head. Now, we know that Caesar can claim what is his, but the key here, though, is that he can't claim what is God's. And that is an implication of what Jesus says. We are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and we are to render to God what is God's. And when Caesar takes things that belong to God, he is wrong. So certain things, such as homage, worship, faith, is not to be given to Caesar, but is to be given to God alone. And it is not the case that Scripture only prohibits inward idolatry in your heart. That is a problem, to be sure. But even outward public displays that are tied to or associated with open idolatry. That is a problem. God does not just want hidden Christians, people who are ashamed before Jesus, right? Jesus even says that. 
you're ashamed before me, I will be ashamed before you, before the Father. If you deny me, I'll deny you before the Father. So the thing is, and this is a problem, this is always a temptation, right? Certainly in, 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 in you know, currently in Muslim countries that have heavy persecution, there are a lot of Christians who go through the motions of Islam. And, you know, there's there's obviously some debate as to what can you partake of still, whether it's, you know, certain dress and, and food and things like that, certain cultural practices, but and still obviously be true to your faith in Christ, but what things are kind of a compromise or kind of sneaky, right? Like still doing the same five prayers a day, you're just you're just praying to Jesus, uh, but it looks like you're doing everything that a Muslim would do. And maybe there's some some question about that. But the point is, is that um, God does not want hidden Christians. Now, all nations and all cultures are religious. We've covered that as well. Every, every nation or culture has a God or a God of the system. And all laws come from an ultimate lawgiver, an ultimate authority. So for the Romans, their chief idol at the time of the empire was the spirit of man, the spirit of power which was described as the genius of the emperor because he is the pinnacle of power, right? So it's really about power and and human will and human capability. Um, it really is uh, a, a repeat, if you will, of Babel, the spirit of Babel, right? And if you read the account of the Tower of Babel, there is no false god that is mentioned. Nothing is said about the Babylonians uh, worshiping false gods. Now, really, it was a self-deification of mankind. It was, let us make a name for ourselves, right? So, it was all about man's power. It was all about the spirit of man. And the Romans could not separate public religion with civic good, okay? you If you were to say, well, I'm a good citizen. I'm just not going to partake of these public displays of loyalty to the power of Rome, to the genius of the emperor, whether it's the the gladiatorial games, the circus, um, you know, the theater, whatever the case may be. I, I, but I'm still a good citizen, and they would not understand that. They they would not see how that's possible. To be a good citizen is to join in with the many in the public display of basically affection for the empire, for the spirit of the empire, and essentially faith faith in the empire, faith in the power of man, the genius of the emperor, uh, faith drives the behavior and their view of the state. And uh, they believed in the authority, ultimate authority of the state, the pagans did. But the Christians did as well, right? Their faith drove their behavior and their view of the state. So they, they had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they viewed the state as subservient or under the authority of God, the state is not God. The state has a limited authority, whereas the pagans would say they have an unlimited authority. Um, and the Christians would say, well, we honor the king because God commands us to, not because the king is God, right? Not because Caesar is Lord, but because Jesus is Lord, we honor the king. And of course, the Romans did not, did not see that, couldn't understand that. Uh, the state had an unlimited authority because the goal was unity. The goal was to survive and to thrive and, and unity was needed to do that, so so be it. You know, those who refuse will be removed from the empire, they'll be punished, or they'll be compelled to comply. 
regardless of whether they truly believe it or not. And there's some similarities to this with the statue of Nebuchadnezzar back in the book of Daniel. Nothing is in that passage saying that, that all the people actually believed Nebuchadnezzar's statue was divine, or they actually believed Nebuchadnezzar's God was, was a true God, or that Nebuchadnezzar was the, was the son of, of that God. Um, they just all had to bow down. They all had to do the outward, the outward act, and that would make Nebuchadnezzar happy. All right. So, but nothing. There's nothing about conscience in there, like that. You had to believe it. You just had to do it. That was the whole point. And Daniel's friends just wouldn't do it. And maybe someone could have argued with them and, and said, "Well, just look. Just believe in Yahweh. Just believe in the true God. But just look. Bow down." Pretend like you're worshiping the statue, but really just in your heart, worship God. And that would not have been an option for, for Daniel's uh, three friends. Um, what mattered was the public display. What everyone else was seeing them doing is, is key as well, not just hiding it in your heart uh, there. Again, God does not want hidden, cowardly Christians. So, Civil disobedience, now we're moving to civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is at root a refusal to commit idolatry, essentially. I mean, it's a refusal to acknowledge false gods as true gods. It's a refusal to serve, obey the demands of a false god. It's a uh, desire to give ultimate obedience to the one true God. It's an affirmation that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And when Caesar demands things that aren't his, he's wrong and he is to be disobeyed. So, what does that mean? How do we engage in this civil disobedience properly? What are some of the steps there? And I've mentioned this before in other other podcasts, but I'm going to summarize it here. The first step is prayer and petition. If you've confirmed that I that publicly endorsed idolatry or public behavior connected to idolatry is present and that you are being coerced into participating in it, or you're being prohibited from obeying God and doing the right thing, you need to pray for wisdom. You need to identify what can be redeemed from the practice, from the behavior, and what cannot be redeemed. But you are not to compromise with the idolatry. You're to do what God commands, and you are to avoid what God prohibits. But you are able to exercise freedom in what God allows. All right? You can restrain your own freedom for your brother, the conscience of your brother and sister in the Lord, or restraining your freedom to win over an unbeliever. But that doesn't mean that you can sin or refuse to obey God when God commands it. And yes, as Christians, we should seek to avoid causing unnecessary offense. And the best example in Scripture of this is an example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. Here's what it says. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Okay, so in this we see here, Jesus explicitly says to avoid giving offense, okay? But here's the key. This temple tax was a legitimate uh, tax commanded by God in the law. So it was not a man-made law. 
This is God's law. God had commanded uh, that half shekel per person every year for the tax of the temple to sustain and support the temple. And the temple tax collectors are simply asking, probably you know, probably to trick or to find a way to um, condemn Jesus. They're asking, so hey, does he pay for it? Does he obey God's law? Now, the thing here is that Jesus is technically exempt, and that's why he mentions um, the difference between sons and servants, right? Because kings don't tax their sons. They don't tax their children. Okay, kings tax everybody else. And Jesus is the son of God, right? God is the owner of the temple. It's God's temple. So in a way, it's Jesus' temple. It belongs to him. Okay, it belongs to God the Father. It belongs to Jesus. So Jesus, as the Son of God, is exempt from paying the tax for the temple, technically and legally. Everything He would be perfectly legal and right, and he would not be sinning to not pay the temple tax. But he is, he is exercising, restraining his freedom, and is not seeking to cause offense, so he pays the tax to the tax collectors, and he, you know, he is technically following the law that's written in the uh, book of Moses there. So this is where um, it's okay to do things like this. This is where it's, it's, it's good and proper to do things like this, to restrain, uh, to restrain yourself and to, and to not cause offense. Um, but again, the key here is that uh, someone is calling you to obey a godly law. That's, that's what um, is, is being there. And even if, even if you're technically exempt from it, maybe going along with it is the right thing to do. So going back to the prayer and petition when you see idolatry, we're not trying to cause a necessary offense, right? But at the same time, we want to call the idolater to repentance and faith. We want the, the people engaging in idolatry, and we want the ones promoting idolatry, to repent from breaking God's law and to even repent from breaking their own laws, because we can hold them to their own laws, because maybe they had laws previously that, that prohibited this behavior, and now they're engaging, they're, engage, they're breaking their own laws, they're breaking their own rules. Um, so that's a problem as well. We need to hold them accountable to both, but ultimately to, to what God has commanded. And of course, if the idolater or the person pushing idolatry refuses to repent, we are not to join them or enable them in their idolatry, where we're to pray that God would restrain them and would ultimately turn them to Christ to grant them repentance. Now, if the idolater goes further and commands you to join them or to assist them, um, we are to refuse to comply while we continue to petition and to pray. And another thing we can do is petition the authority over them to restrain them. And again, this kind of goes along with appealing to the rules of the game. This is what happened with the Apostle Paul and his appeal to Caesar. The issue wasn't so much idolatry that was happening, but just pure injustice. Because if you recall in the book of Acts, uh, Paul is arrested unlawfully, and the Jews are trying to kill him, falsely accusing him. Okay, They don't have two or three witnesses. They don't have evidence. But the Roman governors are trying to do favors for the Jews. So they're not, they're not administering justice for Paul. Uh, they're, they're acting in a way political and trying to uh, get, some, get some brownie points with the Jews. And so Paul ends up in this kind of 
you know, purgatory where you know, years go by, a couple years go by, and still there's no release. He's not innocent. He's not declared innocent. And they're just, nothing's, nothing's happening. Justice is not being done. And he becomes convinced, essentially, that he's not going to get justice uh, from the governor's there, the local authorities there. Uh, so he appeals to Caesar. He follows the rules of the game. He is a Roman citizen. He appeals to Caesar because his goal is to seek justice, okay? And it has nothing to do with idolatry in this case, but it has to do with pure violation of, of God's law and, 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 and injustice that's being, that's being done. So petitioning the authority over, over the idolater or the one pushing for idolatry um, in order to get the idolater or the one pushing it to stop. Okay. Now, let's say you, you do your petition, you're making your prayers, and it's not nothing's happening. Well, the next step is to escape, to seek where you can serve God and proclaim him. And the Bible mentions this uh, specifically in the, in the context of persecution, right? Jesus says in Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So moving family, changing jobs, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which we should be willing to move and to flee when, when there's no other options left for us as far as petition and prayer goes. And it could be as significant as moving countries or moving cities. It could be even a little bit less significant, just simply changing jobs. You're getting persecuted at work um, and there's really no place for you there and you, and you can't move forward and you're probably going to end up getting fired anyway, so maybe it's time to just change jobs before it gets before it gets too crazy. So there's no shame in fleeing, essentially. And you don't necessarily need to go where Christians are, okay? I mean, that's, that's all wonderful and good, but you want to go where there's freedom to serve God. And that, that likely will be in a place where there's Christians, but it might not be. I mean, there just could be just, you know, even some pagan, uh, unbelieving cities or countries that... They happen to have good laws allowing for for freedom to serve God the way that you're being called to do so. And interestingly, God's people are a blessing to any nation. Um, and it's really a, a sad thing when a nation or a city or a, or a town or a county is purging itself of Christians, of God's people. Because Christians are to be the best workers and the best citizens and the best neighbors. So to lose that group of people, to lose God's people from your area, that is a significant loss to that area. And so, okay, if, if, if you're going to be driven away from an, a region, then that's fine. Go and be a blessing and seek the good of another city, of a, another region. And this is similar in spirit to what, what we see as God's judgment in the book of Amos, chapter 8. In verse 11, God is is bringing judgment upon particularly the land of Israel. But this is what he says. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So there's a sense in which that is a type of famine too. Because certainly we are to seek our daily bread and, and we are to feed upon the word of God, right? The word of God nourishes us right? Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven. He is the word incarnate. So uh, a famine of God's word, which is going to be seen through the church proclaiming the word of God, that's not a good thing, right? That's a darkening, if you will. So 
it's a darkening of the land as the as the light of the gospel is is driven out and pushed away. Um, and nations, countries, either embrace light or darkness. And choosing darkness and pushing away light is a choice of destruction. And we see examples of this all throughout history, but some really good examples are found in the Reformation. There are, and I just want to mention three locations that were constantly, people were constantly moving in and out of. So you have Strasbourg, which is in on the border of Germany and France, for a good a good period of time in the Reformation, um, that was a place where Christians could go to find peace and rest and to worship God freely. And in fact, uh, John Calvin tried and and did spend some time in Strasbourg when he fled from France because of persecution there. Now Strasbourg was part of the Holy Roman Empire, and later on, um, the emperor will persecute uh, the Protestants in the empire and. And Strasbourg will no longer be a safe haven. So the pastor there, one of the lead pastors there, Martin Butzer, he flees to England. He goes to England um, when England is going through its reformation. And he teaches there for a little bit. But then guess what? In England, Bloody Mary comes to the throne. She's a devout Catholic. She starts persecuting um, the Protestants there. And now the English Protestants have to flee to to other parts of the of the mainland, and they mostly go to Geneva. So John Knox, who's from Scotland, Miles Coverdale, who helped with uh, translating scripture, both of those guys come to Geneva, and the Genevan Bible is the first Bible printed in English, and it's published from Geneva. So just interesting how things work out and how people had to flee all over uh, all over Europe during the Reformation. Now, the last step is is fighting, resistance, right? Physical resistance. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not still petitioning or attempting to flee, and fighting is not always the answer. Sometimes it is. Christians as individuals should be willing to be arrested for the sake of Christ. The fighting that we do is not fighting for ourselves as individuals. It's fighting for those under our care, and this is a key distinction here because, you know, a lot of people would say, well, Christians shouldn't put up a fight. You should just, you should just take the persecution and get arrested and die, and that's fine as individuals go. But fathers should protect their families. If if their families are being attacked, the, a, a good father doesn't just let their family suffer, but should protect their families as best possible. Church leaders and elders should protect their congregants. The purpose of fighting really, is so that others may flee and survive. That's really what it comes down to. Why do we fight? We fight to hold off the enemy so that others under our care should be able to survive and to get away. And we also might fight to um, result in petitions being heard because sometimes um, fighting does get the attention of the higher magistrates and helps them to realize that what they're doing is not good and might actually stop them from going further. And let me give you a couple examples. And this is mostly with regards to lesser magistrates. So those individuals who are in authority, civil authority, over areas that you simply just can't flee. So, I mean, very rarely can an entire community, nation, or state flee. You know, maybe with the exception of Israel, who their entire nation fled Egypt. But for the most part, you can't just pick up all your people and leave, right? So... So the magistrate that's in charge, governor, 
senator, the mayor, whatever, the king, the prince, uh, the baron, they have a duty to protect those and serve those who are under their authority, right? And that could lead to organized resistance. And this did actually happen during the Reformation in the city of Magdeburg. Now, that city uh, had a city council, and with the support of the pastors, they refused to comply with the commands of the emperor. So the emperor was Catholic, Emperor Charles V, and he put a, a law in place that basically said, you can't be Protestant anymore. You need to, uh, the whole empire will be Catholic. And we're no longer going to honor um, the previous agreements that allowed Protestants to worship in the way they see fit. So whereas previously uh, agreements had been made, now the emperor was, was getting rid of those agreements. He was going back on those agreements and was instituting a new policy that basically made everyone Catholic. And that was in the year 15, around the year 1550. Now, the city of Magdeburg said no. And the pastors and the city council all agreed. And they said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to bind the consciences of, of the people. We're going to let people worship as as they want. We want, you know, we're a Protestant city. Most of the people are Protestant. Here's, we want, here's how we want to worship. The emperor sends an army uh, around 1550 to, to conquer and subdue the city. And it was led by a commander named Maurice, Maurice of Saxony. Now, what's interesting is that Maurice was a Protestant, but he came to believe that the emperor was violating uh, multiple uh, rules there. Not only was the emperor breaking God's law, and violating conscience, but the emperor was also breaking um, a previously agreed upon rule that he had made, allowing for uh, the Lutherans predominantly to worship. And so, so Maurice felt that the emperor was acting outside of his authority. And so Maurice joins with the rebels, and he helps defend the city of Magdeburg against the emperor. And ultimately, the emperor is defeated and has to flee to Austria. And then a peace is signed, I believe it's in 1555, that allows freedom of worship. So after the lesser magistrates resist and do an, and do a bit of injury against the the emperor who's acting like a like a beast, right? Who's who's acting like a tyrant, that actually leads to uh, the institution of freedom of religion, at least to some increased degree, better than it was before, right? So there so something good came out of that, right? And so we see examples of this all throughout history. The American War for Independence, I would argue, is a, is a very good example of lesser magistrates uh, standing up for their people, protecting their people, and resisting a higher magistrate who's acting outside of his authority. We don't have time to go into that whole history right now, but I would encourage you to look, to look up as to why and how um, the American colonists were resisting. Why were they doing it? And it was predominantly because Parliament, British Parliament, was was acting outside of its authority, and the king was failing to do his job. King George was failing to do his job, uh, his duty um, for the colonies. And so the the already established government of the colonies, the lesser magistrates were protecting their people, and so they said no, and they and they and they ultimately offered up resistance. Uh, in the form of a defensive war. Um, so the point is, though, is that there is a place for physical resistance. Mostly is going to be 
a lesser magistrate, someone who is honoring God and is in a position of authority and is trying to protect um, the, the people that are under his authority. Uh, and to do that might require taking up arms. But again, that is never to be done without petition, prayer, fleeing if you can, and as many other ways as possible to avoid bloodshed. And it's ultimately defensive in nature. So that will do it for today's episode. So now that we've briefly looked at uh, resistance to civil, you know, to idolatry, civil disobedience. Um, next time, I want to get into modern idolatry today with things like the vaccine, COVID vaccine and masking. So we'll see how that goes next time. So thank you again for joining me today. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to you joining me next time. So until then, take care and peace.